0: If I could track the most important conversations that you've had in your life, I reckon I could also map out the reasons for some of the major twists and turns in your life. Conversations carry some of the most powerful, life-changing moments you'll ever come across earliest conversation I remember in my life was just after the passing of my dad. I was about two and a half years old, and when I see a two and a half year old nowadays, I can't believe I can still remember the conversation. But I was obviously stressed, or my mom was stressed at the time, and my mom told me that my dad had gone to heaven because he was going to go and build us a magnificent mansion there. That's why he left so early. And uh, for me... At that time, it brought me a little bit of peace, and for a while afterwards as well, I returned to that thought a couple of times. There's nothing much theologically correct about that conversation, but it certainly did something for me at that time. At 48 years old, I still remember some of the conversations that went down in my home about my conduct and me as a person. And I'm sure there's many people like that here. In fact, everyone is like that that's sitting here today. But years later, those words that were used in our upbringing and emotions that were that were stirred up in our lives in the, in those early years still echo in our minds somewhere and have a knock-on effect into who we are and how we live our lives. I remember the conversation that I had with God about my career choice. Round about standard 9, grade 11, God stepped into my life at that time Pivotal time and he said, Rich, what does it matter that you gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? And that was the verse that the Lord gave me that clarified for me that I want to spend the rest of my life investing in the things of the soul as the most important career that I could cho- choose. I remember the first time I ever had a chat about getting into a dating relationship with Cindy. It was magic stuff. It was in my flat in Helbra. Yes, you heard correctly very romantic setting, the fact that we were chatting about the possibility of dating, no matter how that actual conversation went, just the fact that we were chatting about dating, it was magic stuff. It was almost as awesome as dating her. But it was a life-transforming conversation. One thing lead to the next, and the rest, as they say, is history. Remember the conversation I had with the senior pastor of this church 25 years ago about working working here, the idea of working here was uber-exciting. And it has radically changed these last 25 years for myself. The Bottom line, folk, the right conversations with the right people have the potential to change your life forever. Which is why we as a church have for the last couple of weeks put so much emphasis on those LTC pamphlets that you found on your chair when you walked in. If you haven't looked at one of these, can I just suggest... Just put it in your pocket, take it home, put it on the toilet back seat, and when you're like sitting there, got nothing to do, have a look at it, read it. All right? Folk, it is our genuine hope and prayer that as people bind to the idea that is described in those pamphlets, that life changing, spiritful, Godful conversations will be birthed throughout this congregation. That's our desire for those pamphlets. Let's be honest for a moment. All of us us can see the worth of something like that happening in our lives. Quality spiritual conversations. We all believe in that. That that having the right conversations with the right people is is a powerful thing. It's why we'll chat with a financial advisor or a doctor or a car mechanic. Because we fully understand the logic behind speaking to the right people about big decisions. We, we believe in that. And so it's not the logic that stands in the way of this being something that we adopt. I reckon we'll find difficulties to give time and to give effort to this for other reasons. So I just want to take a bit of time again this morning to clarify and to probe a few issues around this thing. And hopefully these, these, these questions, this clarification may invite a bunch of more people to say, let me just give these conversations a go. Let me find the right people to navigate these conversations with. So what is at the heart of the connections that are mentioned in that pamphlet? Why, why, Why would we go there as a church? Why would we invest as a church so much of our focus on trying to get this off the ground? Well, the biblical answer is found in a story that is told in the very early years of our world's existence. Genesis chapter 4. But just before we read that passage, I want you to understand that the stories in Genesis are often archetypes. And an archetype is the first of a long pattern of similar events. Does that make sense? And so if we understand the archetype, we'll get to grips with the nature of all the similar events that follow on from from it. Or to put it another way, as we read the stories of Genesis, we'll often encounter the genetic makeup of history. That's why it's called Genesis. It's in the genes. The basic units of tendencies that we'll witness being relived over and over and over again in history can be found in the stories of Genesis. And so as we read the story, I want you to keep a lookout for the fact that this is saying something very deep and fundamental about humanity as a whole. It's not just a little story about a family occurrence that happened to a very dysfunctional family many millennia ago. So let's read together, or you can just follow on the screen behind me, Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Adam made love to his wife Eve. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, i brought forth a man. And Later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? No mistake, it's a loaded story. Lots of important stuff happening there. Lots of archetypes that we could unpack. We could get into the conversation about why Abel's offering was seen as better than Cain's. But we're not going to go there. We could explore more deeply the nature of, ex- of sin as it's expressed in that passage. Some would say, and I've read some commentators that, that say, verse 6 is one of the best descriptions of sc- sin that you'll ever come across in Scripture. Remember it says, sin He's crouching at your door. Very picturesque. It desires to have you. Then it says, but you must not rule over it. That's an epic three-point sermon in the making there. But we're not going there. I want to focus on the question that Cain throws out at God. Just after his sin starts to be exposed. If you remember towards the end of the passage, the text reads, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. And he asked the question, Am I my brother's keeper? Now there's a bunch of things that grab me or, or intrigue me about that question. For me, I don't know about you, but for me it is a question that's got attitude attached to it. That response sounds like it is an element of cheekiness, you know, sassiness about it. I can almost hear the tone that he uses when he asks that question of God. It's a little drop lip, you know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's a tone a child will use when cornered. See, sometimes we'll come across people in life who when they're cornered by their own sin, they come out fighting. It's not a humble I'm sorry kind of response. There's nothing contrite about this response. They choose instead to attack the people around them who've witnessed their sin. They attack those that know about their sin as if they're in the wrong for witnessing what they've done wrong looks like Cain is in that space. He's looking for a way out, something to divert attention from his own guilt. And so he goes on this kind of passive-aggressive attack. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? As if that's the major issue on the table. But when he asks that question, I also find it to be a very weighty question. It seems it was meant as a throwaway kind of divergy tactic, but it, but it nevertheless grabs my attention. Instead of distracting me from the main issue, I become intrigued by that question, and it kind of focuses me on a whole new level. That's how it works for me. In fact, it's such a powerful question that I honestly think that there are more people alive today that are familiar with the question than the story that gave birth to that question. Many of us have heard, Am I my brother's keeper? Not many of us know where that that question was birthed. And so it kind of flip flopped on him a bit. And so I'd also add that it's not a quiet question. It's not an innocent question. It really has the ability to provoke us. If I were willingly, if I were to willingly linger a little with that question in the quietness of my room, allowing my life to genuinely be interrogated by that question. It's amazing how God's Spirit will fill that silence with so many ways that we are genuinely called to be our brother's keeper. Very few of us, us, I think, will come out empty-handed if we honestly ask that question before our God. Another thing to note is that I believe it's a question that will quite accurately reveal something of the state of our heart. The way way Cain phrased that question is, is some kind of slam dunk rebuttal of his conscience. You know, he was trying to shut down God's word in his mind. When we use the question in that same way, with that same attitude, we can know quite clearly that sin is filling our heart. You see, the truth is that sin makes us selfish. It keeps us interested only in our own good, our own space. It simply doesn't have room for another person in our heart, for our neighbor or for our brother or for our sister. And we can see that so plainly in Cain's response. The sinfulness and selfishness that is bred in his life. But if everything, if of everything we might say about that question, I think it's most important to note that in some way or shape or form, that that question is the second most powerful question we're ever able to ask. If the first one is, God, how do I love you more? The second one will certainly be, how do I love my neighbor more? Which is a very close relative to the question that Cain was asking. It's a very very deep and powerful question because it's been woven into the fabric of humanity right from the start, the early pages of Genesis. That's why this story is given to us so early in Scripture. If the first chapters of Genesis are mostly about a failure in the relationship between God and man when man ate, ate that forbidden fruit, this chapter is a horrific archetypal window into the future that reveals to us the end result of how sin affects human relationships the degrading nature of sin in human relationships sin will break down it will erode, it will disintegrate relationships, sin will turn us against each other, sin will fill us with suspicion and dislike and hatred, it will fill us with the kinds of stuff that will in the end lead towards murder We will choose rather to disown people around us than to hope for and work for their well-being. But imagine a community that is sold on fighting against that kind of nature. A community that is sold on loving each other. Imagine a community that has as its core a desire to be keepers and protectors and defenders of each other. A genuine desire, a sacrificial desire, committed desire to look after each other. Imagine a community like that. A community that is willing to be there for each other. To be our brother's keepers, our sister's keepers. A community that is disturbed by people that go missing, or people that are broken, or people that are hurting. Imagine a community like that. Imagine our church. Increasingly becoming a community like that. I have a video that I want to show you that illustrates some of this very explicitly. It's from a Netflix documentary. It's going to take about 17 minutes long, so you're going to settle in a little bit to watch it. I'd give it a, I'd, I'd give it a PG-11 rating. So if necessary, please handle kids in the congregation sensitively. Some of the themes or the scenes of this video are quite hair-raising at times. You'll see some pretty broken people being t- dragged out of burning and broke, a lot of rubble. The setting is a war scene. It happened in about 2016 in a city called Aleppo, which was in Syria. Russian bombs are raining down constantly on a city full of people. But the thing I want you to be most aware of is the attitudes and the hearts of the people wearing the white helmets. Why not you sit back and watch this for a few minutes. Some very, very emotional moments in that, in that video clip. Some very disturbing moments, some incredibly powerful moments. For some, it might be uncomfortable that it was a movie about a bunch of Muslim men doing an incredible job. And if you'd like to chat with me about that and how that fits into your theology, that might be a great conversation for all of us. But hopefully that didn't blind anyone from seeing and appreciating some crucially important things. And so I ask you, did you see the white helmets... Running towards the trouble. The dust is flowing, crowds of people are running in one direction and they're running in the other direction towards the trouble. Did you see them putting their own lives at risk? That moment where they pulled the little baby out and there's a guy with tears just streaming from his eyes. A couple of months later, that guy was killed by a bomb. Did you hear them claiming strangers to be their family? Did you hear that the job of caring is nothing less than sacred? So this action of being my brother's keeper is at the center of Jesus' work here on earth. It's at the center of the salvation story. It's at the center of the continued success of the salvation story. Although it's pictured well by those Muslim guys, it's personified perfectly by Christ's death on the cross. His death is a death of a brother keeping the well-being of his family first and foremost in his mind. We don't have bombs here. But we do have poverty right on our doorstep. We do have drugs, sometimes in our family, sometimes at the workplace, wherever it is. We do have domestic violence that people need to be protected from. We've got failing marriages always within our circle of influence. We've got loneliness right here in this church. We've got corruption in, in, in so many levels of our community. We don't have bombs here, no rockets flying at us. But we do have people arriving for the first time at our church with, filled with a need for Christ and a connection that, that will make this place a safe place for them to pursue that need. We don't have bombs there, but we're surrounded by friends that desperately need people around around them that love them enough to speak truths into their lives. Sometimes tough, sometimes encouraging truths. That's what it means to be our brother's keeper. We might not fear for our lives as much as people in Aleppo did, but many here today are longing for a significant walk with the Lord. If only someone would take them by the hand and lead them towards it. Sometimes we need to be the one whose hand is held as we're taken forward. But we're too insular. We're too independent. i got this covered. There was a day in Jesus' life where he speaks out some of his most well-known words. Where he says in John chapter 13, verse 30 and 35, A new command I give to you. Love one another as i have loved you so you must love one another by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another if we step beyond ourselves and put our hands in the hands of people around us and say let me take you somewhere to do this, let's banish excuses once and for always. Let's find a new gear in this. We call by God to carry each other. It's in Christ's example. It's in his words. It's in the fabric of humanity. Even the Muslims get that. It starts with a desire to go beyond our own little personal safe space. It then requires us to ask a name to start a conversation that goes towards a life-changing conversation and then gives a hand, it then gives an hour, it then gives a shoulder to cry on, it gives a rand, it gives a back to carry something. Sometimes it requires us to give our life but to turn our back on this call to each one of us to step beyond ourselves and towards those that are around us that are in need is to shut our minds to a calling that God has placed on, our, on humanity right, right from the start. May this community excel in loving one another. May that space outside there not be just about connecting with myself and my friends again. May we become a space where we love people that are new here, that are hurting you. May this be something that becomes a life-changing experience, not only for you, but also towards people that you put your hand out towards. Let's close in a word of prayer together. Lord, won't you teach us what it means to be our brother's keeper, what it means to be the keeper of each other. Lord, won't you teach us to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength? And won't you teach us what it looks like to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? Grow us in this way, please, Lord. Open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, and open our hands, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.